And okay, we're back. Thank you guys for hang holding on for us while uh, we got our technical difficulties worked out. So pretending that whole break didn't happen and you guys went and got some wine, uh, we'll continue on to where we were. So Tanya, you, you were saying that you know it was a 24-hour um, comic drawing session. They had naps, uh, places and everything, which sounds delightful. Naps for the brave. <laughs> um, because it's 24 consecutive hours, so uh, you got to consider you 24 pages in 24 hours. So you have an hour for each page. That mm -hmm. doesn't include writing the script. That doesn't include getting up to go to the bathroom. That doesn't include. Um, so it get, it whittles down pretty fast. Uh, so my first 24 hour comic book day, I. I had my head down. Like, mm -hmm. there were um, a lot of other people take a much more leisurely uh, approach to the event, which is probably wise. You know, get up and visit, and, you know, go for walks. Um, but I was, I was on a mission. Like, I did not want to fail this. <laughs> now, was, was Havenhurst for your first comic book day? Or, was, or did you do something else on your first day? So, this is the first time I did 24-hour comic book day, and I accidentally started accidentally started a series. So there's um, it's like the guy behind me was doing a comic about necromancer slugs. The people the the table on the other side were doing uh -huh. a comic about fart ninjas, um, and, and all these topics lend themselves way more to you know you start getting delirious in the wee hours in the morning and here I am like the asshole trying to do something serious. <laughs> uh, so I actually had everything, I had it written, I had it thumbnailed, which is um, there's like the layout, so ahead of time you just kind of like figure out the layouts of the page. Mm -hmm. uh, and I had every single page penciled with both the art and the lettering by 7.30 that morning. Oh wow. And and then I called it. I was like, I'm going to drive home while it's still safe for me to drive. <laughs> Unfortunately, we lived very, very close. Um, got home, and I thought I was going to pass out and just be, like, dead to the world for, for several, several hours. I ended up waking up two hours later, got up, I started inking the damn thing. <laughs> Uh, so I, I finished that, um, I ended up printing, I did like a small print run, I tabled my first con, uh, the sketch group that I was in, um, which also meets at the Comic Bug, uh, they have a really great comic, uh, creator community, they do a lot of work to really foster, um, bringing up and coming comic creators. Uh, so they just like they all really encouraged me to like one of them offered to to share his table. So that's the first time I did a con. Um, they were telling me like, oh no, do a bigger print run because I was going to do like the absolute minimum. I was like, I have I'm just kind of testing the waters here. Yeah. Um. So yeah, and it was called the Runaway then. Uh, okay. So there's there's a few copies out there that is uh, that's this, but it says the Runaway. Um, and yeah, I started selling the books and then I started getting the question of what happens next. People were wanting to know what happened next. 
And yeah, because I mean, when you read the comic, it was Ryan read it first, and then he was like, now I know why everybody want to know what happens next, because I want to know what happens next. And then, you know, I talked to you about being on the show before I had a chance to read it, and then, of course, I was the same way. Well, what happens next? You leave off at these really great points where everybody wants to know what happens, what's going to happen. We want more. Um, so you really leave the audience wanting more in that series. And yeah, I finally got to the fourth one this week and I was like, what the hell? More <laughs> questions now that I have answers. This isn't fair. <laughs> oh, I'm so sorry. It's like, it's the thing you're supposed to do. Uh, <laughs> You're supposed to be able to do that to sell the next issue, and it's, I guess I don't have a problem doing that. Um, it just sort of happens. No, not at all. It's one of your very, it's one of your skills. <laughs> um, but I was telling, like, there is no what happens next. Like, this is a standalone thing. There's no rest of the story. But <laughs> it, cattail. <laughs> it's just kind of <laughs> stuck with me, and I started thinking about, um, just the things that inspired the story. I, I wasn't going to do a, like a legit 24 hour comic book day at first because that's a lot of pressure because you're not supposed to have a story already written when you show up. Like you have to come up with the whole damn thing mm -hmm. um, completely from scratch within about 24 hours. And um, Rafael Navarro, who uh, is an excellent artist, um, works on, uh, he's currently working on Guns of Blazing. Uh, he showed me one of his previous 24-hour comic book days with um, projects, which was sort of like this crazy, really surreal stream of consciousness thing. Um, and he convinced me that I should do this legit. Um, <laughs> so there were so many things that happened that almost made Havenhurst not, not exist. Um, another thing was our older cat got sick. And she needed medication four times a day. And uh, if I were to go home, like it's 24 hour comic book day, it's grueling. So mm -hmm. if I had to go home and come back, go home and come back, I probably wouldn't have it in me. It's like, no, I'm home, I'm tired. <laughs> I'm <done." laughs> uh, but my husband, Derek, um, he offered to learn how to give her medicine because she's, she's really fussy. Mm -hmm. uh, so watching him learn how to give her medicine um, for uh, what she needed got me thinking about when I first adopted her as a kitten and she was sick and I had to learn how to give her medicine um, and at the time I didn't have a lot of money so I would take her to the, cause I, d I didn't have a car. Um, any money was going towards her treatment. So I couldn't get things like, you know, a pet carrier. So mm -hmm. I carried her down the street to the best vet's office in my oversized zip up hoodie, <laughs> which might, you know, look familiar. <laughs> yeah, it's good. Yes. <laughs> so that's, that's one of the things that, you know, it's like, the day of what was on my, in my head, um, that ended up becoming the series. Mm -hmm. You know, and it's funny how that happens. And it's like, you know, I do, I do national November writers month 
And for me, writing a 50,000 word book within 30 days is crazy. I can only imagine trying to come up with a 24 page story in 24 hours because any, yeah, you've got to do the art, you've got to do the inking, you've got to do the layout, you've got to do the storyline. And that's just, that's just as crazy. And yeah, coming up with those ideas, we're at least allowed, we're allowed to come up with the idea before we walk in the door, before we actually sit down to write. We're able to come up with an idea. We can write uh, an outline. We're encouraged to do an outline. Um, and we can do backstory. We can create a backstory to things. And for me, when I did my National November Writers Month, We Are America, it was about a family caught up in uh, World War II Monterey, and they're Italians, and the Italians are being put into internment camps at the time in that area. And I actually just I came up with an idea where, you know, with grandmothers, and my husband's grandmother at the time was going through her things, and I came up with the idea of a person going to their grandmother's house, and grandma pulls out this box of photos, and in the bottom of the photos is the picture of grandma with a boy, and that boy is not her grandfather. It is some other boy. And so that's what launched this whole story that kind of morphed from a, you know, love triangle story to this family drama. So, yeah, you really work with what's in your mind and these thoughts and these things that come up. And it's so interesting to hear how, you know, the current thoughts shape the uh, situations. And, um, you know, even going back to Zarina's legacy, the current events shaping you really see that in the story where um, you've got what happened with Pussy Riot in Russia, and you've got this artist that's really central to the plot who, you know, is challenging the church and these all these other events that are going on. It's like, wait a minute, this comes from this. So, you know, what comes outside of life really, you know, gets into our art. Um, so let's see here. Going on to some of our other questions. Um, I think you kind of answered some of Michelle's questions about the technical stuff because I told Tanya before, Michelle never read a comic before. This Tanya's comic was her first ever comic. So we got to pop her comic cherry. <laughs> <laughs> so she has, of course, she had all these questions. What comes first? How did the panel, how do you lay out the panels? So she's really intrigued by this whole thing. Um, actually, so I'm trying to weave Ooh, the store button. Now, is that for the uh, for episode five, issue five? Yeah, yeah. These are uh, yeah, these are uh, the thumbnails. Um, so different people so do different them with different detail. detail. I try and keep it fairly loose for just uh -huh. the um, and get like the composition. So you know, I try to keep it as simple as possible. Um, Nails. It's just like that's pretty much a finished page. Um, yeah, there's a lot of steps. There's the the writing. There's the thumbnails. There's um, doing like concept work. Then you know you're working on the actual page. So there's the the penciling, the inking, the flatting, the coloring, the lettering. Um, and at large comic companies, that's like different people have those jobs. So. Uh, there's a lot of hats to be worn. Yes, yes, there definitely is a, and especially being you know an indie um, 
um, author and creator. That's that's is a lot of work. And then you're also your own PR company too. You got to do your own marketing. So another hat to throw in the mix. <laughs> yeah. Now speaking on the comics themselves, um, we don't have a name for our heroine, do we? I went back to look to double check, and I don't see any names in any of the issues. Is this going to be something that comes up in a later issue as to why we don't know her name yet? With uh, us, <laughs> <laughs> I'm I'm amazed this does not come up more often. Like I don't know if people are scared to ask or if they actually don't notice. But this kind of goes back to the whole like this was not a planned series. So mm -hmm. I, the rest of the story, I kind of had to reverse engineer. Um, she has a name. I don't know what it is. Like I just, I, I actually don't have a name in mind for her. And um, and it's there's going to be a mention. It's going to come up. All right, is it going to be like part of a big reveal when we find some of the answers as to like who her father is? Because uh, that's where a lot of my questions are coming up is, what about dad? What happened to dad? And what happened to her sister's dad? So I'm curious about all of that. You're going to find out what happened to her sister's dad. Um, we meet her father okay. in uh, in four. Yes. We meet, well, our, our main character's father we meet in four. Yes, yeah. We don't meet him in the system. No, no, we meet him, no. but now I'm like, what happened to him? Why he's not there now? Well, I have a theory. But I'm not going to reveal it to everybody. Oh, I'm curious. Yeah. <laughs> so what happened with him? <laughs> um, issue five. Issue five. We'll talk about what happened to him. Okay. When does issue five come out? I'm shooting to have it done in time for WonderCon. It's actually going to be double size because these um, okay. one through four were 24 pages, and starting with five, they are going to be 48 pages. Oh wow! So so that's yeah. Size, so double the questions, double the answers. <laughs> yeah, double our design work. Yeah, but it'll also be a lot easier because you know, kind of going back to the wearing all the hats, it will make my life a lot simpler when it comes to um, printing and inventory. Mm -hmm. That is true. I can imagine that. Now. Speaking with the fact that what we find out in issue four is that she's a healer. We find out in issue one that she's a healer, but we find out in issue four that she gets it from dad. And I love how that's there's such a vulnerability with her being a healer. Um, I don't know, is there any thought in that uh, reasoning for that vulnerability? Did you like put two and two together right away that you wanted that? Uh, so we talked about how my cat um, needing medicine was a huge influence. So there are like three things that I figured that were really um, strong in my mind that day that had a huge impact in making Havenhurst. Um, so it was my cat. There was, uh, I had recently read the first volume of a comic series called Amelia Cole. Okay. And it's another one where it's the, the magical girl torn between worlds. Um, and it took me a while to figure out why, what Amelia Cole's uh, impact on Havenhurst was. And um, 
finally figured out it's Amelia Cole is a it's a fantastic series. I definitely recommend it. Uh, she is never being down and she is incapable of being a bystander. Hmm. When she sees something wrong or somebody who needs help, even if it gets her in a ton of trouble, she can't help herself. Um, and she gets involved. And what hit me was Amelia Cole was exactly the kind of role model that the runaway in Havenhurst really could have used. Mm -hmm. Because she, you know, she complains, but she hasn't really done anything. She has um, serious avoidance issues. So mm -hmm. she sees stuff that's, um, that she's not happy with in the world, but she has spent most of her life in hiding, distancing herself from all of that. So she'll help people when it's convenient, but when it comes to an actual conflict, she's not there yet. Hmm. Uh, but the third one, um, to get back to your actual question, <laughs> was at the time, this was 2013, uh, there was the imminent passing of Obamacare. Mm -hmm. So there was a lot of discussion about the whole concept of uh, a social protection floor when it comes to universal health care. So I was just kind of channeling um, some of my own reflections and frustrations about that conversation that was happening about, like, I don't think it's that people think universal health care is in itself a bad thing. It's just an issue of priorities, mm -hmm. is how people prioritize their values. And in the magical system, um, in the world Havenhurst takes place in, people have, like, they have some basic magical abilities that everybody has. Like, they can make light, they can make food. Um, and it should be a post-scarcity economy. But mm -hmm. uh, they have one major power for the most part. Everyone gets one major power. So what that power is, is a big deal. And if you are part of the ruling family, a power that gives you strength, the ability to defend or be on the offensive is what is really valued. Whereas healing is just like, well, you got that, that's a waste. So there's gotcha. kind of like yeah. this, this smugness or this like, you know, it's like healing is pretty low on the list of the powers that they value. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, you definitely had a lot of this. Michelle picked Michelle up picked the up. whole the um with great power comes great responsibility and, and yes and she's wondering if that's going to be a theme throughout uh the rest of the series <laughs> yes yeah. for those of you listening you're shaking your head yes so this is definitely going to be something that carries on through um <laughs> now speaking of her powers and you know we've got she's kind of she's the underdog and everything I find it interesting because as the series progresses to four, or I think it's in three, where the mom talks about having two demons. Is it demons or do you pronounce it daemons? Uh, daemons. Daemons, okay. 
So she's got two demons, and it's because they have so much power that it has to be filtered out through the demons, as I understand. Yes. Which I love that idea, because it means I've got two little demons, uh, (laughs) known as Fizgig and Lilo. That means I've got a lot lot of power, too. So I love this. (laughs) Um, (laughs) But you see, so far you've seen um, our main character have sustained the both of them and they seem both seem pretty healthy so i'm assuming that this is going to lead into more this is going to be part of her strength building because nobody else seems to pick up on the fact that sisters uh damon is doing just fine with her yeah um yeah and that that definitely comes up like having two damons is not a common thing the, uh, the reason why the Havenhurst family is in power is because they do have enough magic to sustain two daemons. So they're, they're strong, and the idea is if they're strong, then they're more capable of leading and um, keeping this world safe. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's sort of like a mutation that happened. It's not very common. Um, having two daemons is also kind of a status symbol. Because, you know, as we see in four, being able to get even one daemon, um, well, in, uh, even in, in the first, well. the second one, second one, yeah, you see yeah. the issues with getting it denied. You don't have enough, you know, to be, pay tribute to the Havenhurst family, so therefore you don't get a daemon, and it doesn't matter that your kid's gonna die which I find is such an interesting take on the whole um, art versus reality because you see a lot of that here in our real world. Oh, it doesn't matter that your kid's going to die or this horrible thing is going to happen to you because, hey, you should have had the money to think of that ahead of time. So, yeah, and, you know, yeah it's quite interesting. Yeah, it's about you know, the values and the priority, and there's this, like, this sense that there's not enough to go around so the people that have... Um, sort of like hoard like this is not mm-hmm. not considered like a basic thing that everyone should have um so yeah she's got the two demons she's got the uh which means she has the two two main magics the principal magics um and her sister kind of so really resented her for that because she only got the one <laughs> yeah sister only got the one the sister has a little stunt um but we haven't really seen her secondary one have we you just gave away something for uh, something later on, huh? Because we have we have the healing, and now we're going to have a secondary power too. How interesting! Well, uh, now in the first one, um, when she loses control, uh, and then the, we see in the fourth one, um, she has push like a concussive force. Hmm. Okay. So that's that's her. I don't know if one's really the first one or the second one. So the the healing was. Um, was the one that was revealed later. Gotcha. Okay. So now I have to ask the question. If you had any magical abilities, what would they be? That is a really tough question. Um, I think the one that, that is coming most to mind is as an artist, like I have a very clear idea of how I want something to look. And then when you actually put it to paper, that doesn't always turn out, which is sometimes a good thing. Um, 
but it would be nice to be able to translate what is in my mind's eye directly to like the physical paper. I would still want to do the actual tactile uh, part of it, oddly enough. There's something just very, very cathartic about that. Uh, and, you know, the more, the more art I do, the further I get along, it's getting closer, like what I see in my head to what's on the paper. So, mm -hmm. yeah, I guess I'm, I'm working on getting my magical power. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I know for me, I'm going to be, I'm an easy one. I, it would be all about the telekinesis. All about being able to th make things move. Um, I was a fan of Charmed and Shannon Doherty's character. And I would love the idea and the ability to be able to mess with people in that regard. <laughs> uh, I'm sorry, it's a Slytherin in me where, <laughs> you know, somebody's reaching for the sugar at the table and almost oh, just a little bit out of their reach and just a little bit more out of their reach. <laughs> just to sit down and oh gosh I don't know how that happened oh dear things like that and that's why I don't have magical powers because I would never use them for the greater good <laughs> fair enough oh yes and so we talked a little bit about this off air at one point um, today we you kind of have this limit because like you said you intend on this being a series and it's almost like by popular demand you made it a series and which I'm assuming is really what it is where people kept asking what what happens next and so you created more of a story and now you've got this whole world that you built and more stories created and you know and as you made the comment to me people aren't probably gonna like how you plan on ending it so the question I've got to ask is, um, are you, is it about, is it, you know, art versus um, popularity? Are you going, is it more about having to make the right for yourself or write something so commercial that you're able to put food on your table? <laughs> no. <laughs> I, love that. I, mean, I, I totally get like, that's, that's what people need to do to put food on their table. I'm very, um, I'm very fortunate that I, I'm not in that situation. I'm incredibly supportive husband. Um, I would not have turned Havenhurst into a series if I had not come up with what I thought was a good idea to mm -hmm. continue that story. Um, I think if you're if you're making something expressly to be commercial or if you're chasing a trend, um, it's possible that there won't be heart to it like it mm -hmm. needs to be deeply personal it needs to be something that you need to get out that um you know it's like i think we can spot when something is just trying to capitalize on whatever's selling at the moment mm -hmm. and it's going to come and go uh and I have the luxury of being able to do stuff that's meaningful for me. And hopefully that translates into something that is meaningful for other people. I don't know if, like, if I had done Havenhurst, uh, trying to think, like, if I had done, like, Havenhurst is like a, like a Twilight ripoff. Like, I don't know that it would be the same story. I don't know that people would be as interested in what would happen next. <laughs> It just wouldn't have, it wouldn't have been authentic, I guess. 
Yeah, and I think that's a really good thing to key in on is the authenticity of it, where you know every every artist has to ask that of, of themselves: are they are they in are they in it for the money, or are they in it for the art? And I mean, there's nothing wrong with you know doing art to pay your bills. To if you wanted, you know, cop, I think of like copywriters or you know graphic art or commercial art, but you have to be able to do it for yourself to at the end of the day write for yourself to create for yourself and your audience is going to pick up on it in, in authenticity really fast um, but like authors like John Grisham is one that comes to mind where in the very beginning he wrote for himself but by the end he wrote to make a movie um, I kind of think of James Patterson that way though Michelle will probably kill me when she listens to this because she absolutely loves his books but <laughs> so, so I feel like so many of his books are all about the how many more can I sell? How many more how many more people will buy them? So Michelle, don't kill me when you listen to this. <laughs> <laughs> well there's there's a lot of amazing stuff that's come out of commercial art. Like this wine I picked out because it had a Mucha label, Alphonse Mucha. Uh if you um, if you see like Art Nouveau art, that's pretty much that's usually uh, who you see. All the stuff that he's famous for was commercial art that he hated, like his mm -hmm. passion project where his oil paintings. But mm -hmm. the commercial art that he did made such a huge contribution to you know our culture as a whole. So I mean, there's, and you have there's to have you. Yeah, and you have to wonder, even if he, you know, for that, how much of it was, you know, he still, even though he hated it, how much of it was him that he was putting into that art still, even though he hated it. Mm -hmm. That's true. So, I mean, yeah, there's, there's that. So, yeah, it's a, it's a debate that we all have to wage within ourselves, and I see that you've already had that debate in, for yourself. <laughs> that you want. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, if our, our first situation changed, that could, you know, my position could change very, very rapidly. Um, you know, going hungry can do a lot to a person's motivations. <laughs> yes, yes, I can. can. <laughs> uh, but, yeah, and as far as, like, how, because I know how Havenhurst is going to end. Um, hopefully people won't hate how it ends, but I have a feeling that, they're still going to want to know what's going to happen next because there's a reveal that, mm -hmm. like, the story itself will be wrapped up, but as far as the world, there's going to be a little bit like, what the hell was that? <laughs> so I guess... Same. Um, you never know. You could always take a break. You could always do the J.K. Rowling thing. You write your seven seven books. Who knows how many are going to be in your series? I'm not saying seven or eight, but you know they're busy. <laughs> I think it's a great number to have. Yeah. Yeah. Take a break. Do some other things for a while, and you know who knows if you wanted to, you could pick up and build off of that world and have your own fantastic piece somewhere to find them spin off. So I mean, that's always possible too. Yeah, it leaves it open, but uh, I have another project that I I want to get start on, started on once Havenhurst mm -hmm. is done. That I'm very excited. <laughs> <laughs> yes, we all have those projects where, um, like for me, I was working on one book and I got to the point of editing it, and then the this NaNoWriMo 
book came about and it was a second draft of it. And because of everything that's happening right now in our world, as much as I love my Anita book, this one, We Are America, is the story that needs to be told right now, or this is the one that needs to get out into the world, not just for, you know, the food, being able to feed yourself matter, but because it's a story that needs to be heard by people. So, yeah, it's nice to have that. Sometimes one story has to, jumps up in, in your face and is like, okay, you need to tell me right now. I need to be the one that's told as opposed to the one that has to step back and yeah, you can get to it later. Their story, their time will come. Yeah, <laughs> I had no idea there were internment camps for Italians. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, the the Japanese. Um, at the end of the day, it was like one hundred twenty thousand Japanese. Uh, for the Italians, there's a great series on that was done through PBS that you can see um, on Amazon now and get. And it was it's called Italian America, and it, it chronicles the history of Italians um, in America. And during World War II, there was an enemy alien act. And um, they restricted people. People were banned from going into San Francisco Bay. Uh, their fishing boats were taken away. And fishing was the major source of the economy in Monterey. And most of the fishermen were Italians. Most of the people who worked in the canneries, they were Italians as well. And the Navy just took their boats. Uh, they banned them from the bay. They banned them from being beyond uh, Pacific Coast Highway. For those of you who aren't in California, don't know what Pacific Coast Highway is. It's a long highway that runs uh, the coast down the coast of California. And so they couldn't go on the ocean side of Pacific Coast Highway. So pe- there were people who lived there. And they had to be moved. And a lot of them ended up going either to Salinas or into these internment camps. Um, if you weren't a citizen, if you had been living in the United States, let's say for like, I think it was like 20 years or something like that, that was considered to be treasonous. You've been living in the United States for 20 years, you don't speak the language, you're not a citizen, that's treason. They consider that to be treason, and they were put, um, I want to say they were put into the internment camps. Um, the one thing that makes me the angriest about this is during World War One. The United States dragged its feet on going into the wars, most people know. And a lot of the European countries recruited out of America to get more soldiers, since America wasn't involved. And there are cases where Italian immigrants, people who had immigrated like in their teenage years or as children to the United States, they got their citizenship. And then when World War One broke out, they were like, well, if I'm going to fight for another country, I'm going to fight for this land that I come from, or my family comes from, and I'm going to fight for Italy. And they became, you know, soldiers for World War, for Italy during World War One. And then when they came back, they resumed their life as American citizens. And there, were, there was a club for World War One veterans. And the government came in, they got the names of everybody that was on that club, and they put them all into internment camps. And they revoked their citizenships. And they lost the writs of habeas corpus and you name it. And so a lot of negative things were done. It wasn't as bad with the Japanese. Um, so there was, I think, a lot worse things that happened with the Japanese than they did with the Italians. But it was still, it was so awful and it was still wrong. And yeah. the Italian community didn't talk about it. They did it to some Germans too. Um, but Italians, um, you know, they were... They were very negative about it and ended up, it's funny that it ended up being reversed 
partially because of Joe DiMaggio. Because he was that famous face. He was the good-looking boy who was serving in World War II for his country. And then it came out that his family couldn't go to, they owned a restaurant in San Francisco. They couldn't go to their own restaurant and run their own restaurant. His dad could no longer fish in the bay. His family couldn't support themselves because of this. And so that got out, and um, Mayor LaGuardia in New York was a big pusher of getting this reversed. And they finally, Roosevelt looked at it, and he was like, there are a lot of Italians in the United States, and there are a lot of Italians along the coast, and this is a big voting block for me when the election comes up. And so that's how it ended up getting reversed. But yeah, nobody, hardly anybody knows about it. It was a short paragraph in my history textbook when I was in high school. And that was it. So yeah, my little rant on that. <laughs> oh, well, I, well, one thing I just <laughs> huh? I learned something. A whole like you know, it's like we didn't have it as bad as these other people. It's just kind of like we were really messed up basis of comparison. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it really is. But I mean. It's one of those things where I faced with writing this where I wanted to bring in some of the stuff that happened with the Japanese because the two cultures ended up colliding with each other. Um, but I'm also trying to tread careful where it's like, yeah, it sucked for us, but we got off easy in comparison. Right, right. And so, I, you know, I'm also trying to be respectful of that where I'm like, not just like, hey, look at me, look at what happened to, you know, my people. It's, yeah, it happened to these other people too. And, you know, if this if this happened for us and we weren't so bad and it was still a bad situation, how much worse was it for the Japanese? Well, and it's also, I think it's good to get it out there because, I mean, if you're in America and you're Japanese, people can look at you and say, oh, you're Japanese, whereas Italian, mm -hmm. it's a little more ambiguous. Mm -hmm. And I think maybe a, it's probably a really valuable message right now that Whiteness is kind of conditional. Yeah. I mean, you look at like how. Oh, sorry, go ahead. <laughs> oh, through my sorry. Well, through my research, I, I learned that it wasn't until the mid 1940s that Italians were considered white. Before the mid 1940s, Italians were classified as um, part of the African um, races in the U.S. Census, so they were considered to be to be black in the census and then after the italian they were um the enemy alien actors revoked they classified them as being white so that they could be non-enemy aliens so it's yes. yeah like you're saying white the whole look at whiteness well you look at like the um the history of the irish and um the jews it's like mm -hmm. there's kind of this whole thing it's like you know, you get to be white as long as you behave. Exactly. So it's just like this, you know, this whole idea of, you know, I know some people hate this term, but white privilege, like it's very conditional. Like you step outside the lines and all of a sudden. Absolutely. Um, yeah, all of a sudden you're on the right side, the wrong side and, um, or I don't know, the wrong side would be the right term for that. But... <laughs> But yeah, you, you know, it's it's very true, and it's very something you know serious to look at. If you you step outside of those lines of these designated societal lines, and then you're not white anymore. You don't get the privileges anymore. 
And I mean, and there really is such a thing as white privilege. I mean, I, my husband and I accidentally got lost in Watts and we kind of had this, we uncomfortably laughed because we felt like we could be comfortable stopping at a, well, asking a police officer for directions because we were white. So they wouldn't beat us up. But that was, and it's very sad that we, you know, we do have this in society. And that's, you know, the fact that we're able to joke about white privilege proves that there is such a thing as white privilege. Yeah. And we're yeah. able to, <laughs> we can invoke white privilege. Um, so, yeah, you have it. And my dad talks about this concept with immigrants that come into um, the country. And you see it time again, like you see it with the Irish, then you saw it with the Italians. And you're starting to see it with the Mexicans a little bit because they're not the bottom rung of the immigrant uh, chain anymore. But the more they give up of their culture, the more they're considered to be white. And the more they're considered to be white, the more they're considered to be part of the American society. And American culture, like, you know, tacos. I think of tacos and Taco Bell. You've got a fast food chain of Mexican food. <laughs> and they're, you know, you know, watering it down. And food is a basic thing for that. Um, you know, Italian food. Everybody, everybody, even the Irish grandmothers can make spaghetti now. Spaghetti is a standard thing in American food, American culture. Pizza the same way. You have pizza fast food chains. The more you give up of your culture, the more of a more white you are. And it's a very racist idea that we have. So Yeah, it's erasure. Yeah, it's if you, you know, it's kinda of, you kill people, you kill the body, you kill the culture, you kill the soul. Um, and it's one thing, um mm -hmm. my mother is Portuguese. And mm -hmm. she kind of laments, like, going back there, like, seeing the Pizza Hut and going to the grocery store and seeing the sliced white bread on the shelves. And, uh, you know, just kind of, like, little by little, like, even there, uh, mm -hmm. it's sort of this, like, incorporation of an ideal that is not native. Yeah, we went so to Costa Rica, was it three years ago? I want to say about three years ago now that we were there, and it was all fast food. Walking through a mall in Costa Rica was like walking through a mall in America in the 1980s. We tried to find, when we go to another country, we want to find the most authentic food that we can find. Even if it's really weird to us, we want to eat that food, and we want to you know, experience a part of the culture. And it was a struggle to find authentic Costa Rican food. We found a little restaurant that was based out of a house that somebody finally took us to. But everything else was all Americanized. It was all hamburgers. It was all sushi. It was all grilled seafood. That sort of thing. That All these things that you can find in America. And so, yeah. Yeah, it's kind of crazy that, that that reach is extending beyond America. Mm -hmm. Oh, mm -hmm. uh, like my husband was talking about, uh, his work was hosting, um, it was just like a international food, like they were doing a potluck type thing. So people were bringing food from whatever their culture was and he is part Choctaw. So okay. we're researching online. We're trying to find, you know, authentic Choctaw recipes 
and we were coming up with stuff that had sour cream in it and blueberry cobbler and it's like we couldn't find like on all the stuff was like labeled as this is this is Choctaw is a recipe this is Native American food and all the results were I'm pretty sure things that they weren't eating before you know Europeans came over here and it's just like mm-hmm. that erasure you know it's like where yeah, cause I really they had sour cream and cows before the Europeans came over. Cows, I don't think, were native to Northern America pre. Cause no. What? What region is a Choctaw from? Out of curiosity, because I'm not sure, I'm not that familiar with that tribe. So they're um, Oklahoma is where they're based out of now, but that was post Trail of Tears. Okay. So they were, uh, I think they were further east before that. Okay. Um, so, and I know he used to uh, get like the newsletters and everything when he was younger, and now he's sort of like drifted away from that. Um, but it was just like interesting, like, you know, trying to find something about this culture, this heritage, and we couldn't. Mm-hmm. It was just really weird. Yeah, yeah, it's weird and sad how these things have a, have a tendency to develop that way. But I think we have reached the end of our time. Oh. <laughs> we went and got political. <laughs> we did, we got political, and we started talking about history outside of comics and everything of that nature. But uh, tell everybody where they can find um, Havenhurst, where they can download it or buy it and print it themselves. Uh, so I've got uh, havenhurstcomic.com has sort of like a little, um, it's got the about, it's got links to the stores. It's a couple different places you can buy it digitally. You can also get physical copies at uh, Indie Planet. All the links are there. And uh, if you're in Southern California, I do a lot of local cons, and I, um, I sell physical copies there as well, as along, with, um, along with art prints and other things. <laughs> <laughs> yes, other awesome fun things. Um, so go ahead and everybody check her out. Um, you can download uh, Wine, Women, and Words uh, here on YouTube. You can find us at popculturecosmos.com and as well as podcasts.com, Podcast Republic, and on Google Play. And if I add any more on there, I'm going to have to have it all taped on my computer so that I <laughs> I know and remember to say them all. <laughs> but thank you. Well, that's why I've got havenhurstcomic.com. It's like everything is there. Yeah, yeah. I need to do that with Wine, Women, and Words someday that way, but it's okay. Popculture.com, popculturecosmos.wordpress.com is the actual link. Um, They're good to us, and we like being hosted there, and Michelle and I each have our own little columns on there. So check that out, and check out Havenhurst, and thank you, Tanya, so much for joining me and putting up with my technical difficulties. Thank you for having me. Yes, and we'll have to have you on again when Michelle can join us. Yes, yes, and then hopefully we'll be more papers by then. <laughs> yes, hopefully. <laughs> well, thank you, and you have a wonderful night. All right, you too. Okay, bye.